scripture reading this evening. This lesson is taken from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. Matthew 13, verse 44, beginning. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto them, Have ye, have ye un understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto, unto uh, every scribe who hath been made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is in a house that is an householder which bringeth forth out of the treasure the things new and old Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Uh, before I start, big thank you to Dylan. I kind of gave him a challenge this week. He's like, hey, I've got to pick my songs. I said, I'll give you a choice. You can pick between treasures or alms. And from there, he did a great job. So today, I've titled the sermon, I Surrender All. <clears throat> and I want to look together with you at the three parables we've just read, and then a transition. And that transition is literally our Lord talking to his close disciples, and he asks a very simple question. Do you understand? And that's key. Because when they respond yes, Jesus teaches them something they would have never known before. And it's the same for us. And with that transition, we will then look at one of the earliest converts to Christianity. We're going to take a look at Nathaniel, if you can remember him. Okay, so let's take a look at the first parable. I'll make sure I get this clicker going here so I can advance. I do apologize the pink doesn't show up as nicely. Um, if you have troubles, I have copy that I can give digitally to anyone. I can give the physical copy, or we can just uh, go over the verses together. But I will also uh, read the verses so you can follow along as we go through each section. All right. Is this on? It says on. Bear with me. Sorry about that. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Okay, so big thank you to Brother Rex for reading for us today. So we read about the, the man who's working in his field, and he finds a great treasure. He's kind of like, wow, what is this? And he realizes it has great worth. And that's the beginning one in Matthew 
13, verse 44. Then in 45 and 46, we read about this great pearl and this merchant who's literally hunting for pearls. You have to imagine this is his career, if you will. And when he finds this great pearl, he realizes it's the most beautiful pearl imaginable. And then the third example is that of the dragnet, verses 47 onwards. And the dragnet is a fishing term, and we'll take a look more closely at it. We're, we're kind of familiar with it, even though we're landlocked here in Kansas. But, you know, I grew up on the coast, so I, I know a little bit about fishing. I'm not an expert, but I remember the big boats, the ships, literally commercial-sized production ships that reel in hundreds and hundreds of pounds of fish, and they process them right there on the boat. And we'll take a look at that together. And then I mentioned there's this transition. The transition is Jesus talking to the disciples, and we'll relate all of that back to Nathaniel's conversion. So as we advance here, so all in a day's work. We learn from Paul that we are supposed to work diligently for the Lord. Remember, not just as people pleasers or to please mankind, but we have to remember the Lord is watching us. And so Jesus gives this wonderful parable that sort of comes way out of left field for us. This man is working in his field, and he stumbles upon this treasure. You might wonder, well, how is he working in the field and he doesn't know the treasure is there? And we're going to take a look at just how he gets to this treasure, because it's not as superficial as it may seem upon first glance. When we think of this example, this one's kind of unique in Scripture. It doesn't even apply to Kansas when you think of it. We're, we're a farming state, right? Uh, we farm wheat, we'll farm soy, we'll farm corn, stuff like that. Stuff that grows above the surface mostly. But you have to think of this example, and this example literally comes from the, the, the hilly regions of Palestine. In ancient, think of in ancient Israel. I mean, it's there today, but they, they farm a little differently. And this is a man who's going to dig, 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 and he's going to find it. He's going to dig deeply. He's going to dig deep in the banks of his land to find this. And we don't really have that here in Kansas. We don't have many hills. You go eastward, as you know, we get hills, but you go way westward, and there's, you can see forever um, kind of a thing. So in the ancient world, there existed banks or hills on the, the farmland, if you will, uh, of a traditional farmer. The com you've got to think of the common farmer here. And we call them banks. It's kind of interesting. Bank is not like the financial institution we're used to here, right? You say, I need to go to the bank, right? Uh, think of North Carolina, for example. And there's a beautiful region there called the Outer Banks, right? Same in Alaska. They have another term for their banks. But it's, it's a beautiful formation of land. For this farmer, they they would have been used to storing their precious goods in these banks, if you will. They would dig in deep as, as far as they're willing to go, and anything of material or sentimental value, sometimes even junk, they would store it in there. And the reason they would store it in there is you'd have to think in ancient times. Uh, you probably saw the news, Hamas attacked Israel, right? At any moment, there could be war. And it's true throughout all of the ages of the Israelites, right? You think of mighty Jacob coming in with the sword, clearing out the promised land. You think of David's efforts. You think of when they had settled fully and the kingdoms of Israel were established and they would have invading armies. They would have Sennacherib come in. They would have the Egyptians attack them. You name it. Eventually the Romans would come in. For the common folk, they knew instantly that anything of material good, the only way they could keep it safe 
would be to dig and bury and store. And so Jesus brings up this example. This man is working hard, and he stumbles across this great gift. And think about it a little bit. We can actually relate it to a few places in Scripture. The first example is the parable of the talents. And the worthless slave, we always pick on him, but I think for good measure. The worthless slave, what did he do? He took his one talent and he buried it. And the master comes and finds him and he says, what did you do with your talent? Oh, master, I knew you were hard and you were off working in a foreign land when you wanted to come back. I, I preserved it for you. I buried it in the banks of my land so I could return it to you. And of course, the master says, you worthless slave. And what ends up happening to him? He gets tossed into the fires of hell. And Jesus gives this example, and this is before he gives the full explanation on the talents, because Matthew 25 is where that shows up. Um, but Jesus has the same thing in mind here in both examples. To the common farmer, they would understand what this means. And this is key, because if you look at the teachings of the rabbis, and you might hear me say that from time to time for those who have heard me preach before or even in the future. When I mean the teachings of the rabbis, I literally mean the people that would have been the Pharisees or the people that come after Jesus had ascended, but they still teach Judaism. And this is important because it's not too far off from what Jesus taught. And the reason I say that is not because it replaces what our Lord has taught, but it actually shows just how consistent the Lord's message is relevant for the people. So the rabbis would have a saying, they would say, look, there's only one good safe in the world, a safe repository, if you will, and that literally is the earth. And so I have an example here, as I, I think I'm a little bit further ahead. Here we go. Right slide. Sorry about that. Look on the right-hand side. I have NORAD, and for all of, our, for all of my friends that are former service members or current service members, they would be familiar with what NORAD is. That literally is the defense of North America. They keep watch over all the airspace. They keep uh, in tight unison with nuclear command. And where is that buried? It's in the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Now, it's deeply buried. They claim it's nuclear proof, but it's there for good reason. Even today, we kind of get this idea. We understand how good the Earth is at protecting us from things. You think of in you know, maybe 80 years ago when we were doing the nuclear tests, right? They understood very clearly what it meant to have the blast occur above ground or underground and how to protect against it. Or if you keep up with sort of current events, have you heard of the Salbard Global Seed Vault? Maybe you've seen it in Norway. It's this funny looking building that kind of sticks out of this island. And inside they have multiple seeds in what they call gene banks and they protect seeds in case of some sort of cataclysmic event. So our understanding today isn't much different than back then, and here our Lord comes in and he says, look, this farmer is working hard, and by almost happenstance, it's not quite happenstance, he's working hard, he comes across this thing, finds it of great value, and what does he do? He decides to turn everything over and sell it to ensure that he has the precious thing. Now, we know as Christians that the precious thing is literally the kingdom of heaven. But consider that God, we know he made the earth, and consider how even how tough and how dense mountains are, how it can protect things that we like. And here Jesus says, look, even the most valuable thing, if you come across it 
in the most happenstance of ways, if you dig deep for it and you find it, he begins to give us this understanding of what are you going to do to keep it? And like I said, it's a bit detached from our day and age. And I gave an example of the parable of the talents, but turn over to Genesis 31. Remember Rachel stole the idols? She had kept her father's idols. She wasn't supposed to. But what did she do with the idols? Because Jacob is very busy, concerned for his family, and then his livelihood. And what is Rachel concerned of? Rachel is the mother of Israel when you think of it, right? Uh, she is like, well, I'm just going to keep these idols. God said not to do that. We're going to take a look at this example here. Look in verse 17, Genesis 31, verse 17. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property, which he had gathered. <clears throat> his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Padam Aran, in the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Isaac sorry. When Laban had gone to shear the flock, Rachel then stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he had fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. And when it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he then took his kinsmen with him and pursued him at a distance of seven days' journey, that is, by foot. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And God came to Laban at the Aramaeum in a dream that night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. So I brought this example out not to say it's okay to hide stuff, but I brought this example out to show you the importance of something that is seemingly unfamiliar to us. For, let me give you a real-world example. You go to Florida, they don't have basements. They'll tell you we don't have basements because of the hurricane and the flooding, right? We have some basements here in Kansas, especially here in Wichita. Um, but you know where they build most of the basement homes here in the city? In the hilly area, right? Over on hillside there, kind of the old rich area of Wichita. And the reason they build it there is not only because there's a hill, but because the earth is built up and it's really, really good. The rest of Wichita down by Riverside is a floodplain, right? So we're not too far detached. But if you want to protect something very good of, of very good value, some people might say, well, I'll put it in a safe. If you go to the bank today and you go up, you'll probably see a sign on the ATM and it says, look, we have this new anti-hook technology. You can't take your nice truck, put your chain around it, and run away with it because, you know, we've reinforced it and good luck, right? It'll rip your bumper apart or worse. But the point is, you know that if something of great value, you will put it somewhere you know it can be kept. And so Jesus is pointing out, look, this thing of great value, this kingdom of heaven, literally can be found anywhere. He starts off with this example of the farmer, and we'll go to the pearl next. Imagine where pearls are while we kind of get, get to the next example. But I want to kind of point out something here. There is an accusation that exists from sort of naysayers who are, they're Christian still, but there's an accusation here, and, and I want to point it out because it's important to understand really what Jesus is saying. The first accusation is they say the parable of the Lord somehow glorifies this man who does some sort of sketchy thing with something he finds in his property. And I'm going to give you an example to illustrate that point where it becomes relevant. In America, if you have the deed to your land, you're allowed the minerals underneath. But not so in Canada. 
If you were to own property in Canada, say 20 acres, you do not have the mineral rights below the surface. And that's important. So the accusation that comes forth is he somehow glorifies this man who is kind of suspect what he does with what he finds. Somebody else has a claim to it, in other words. But we have a saying today. Do you remember as little kids and for the children present today, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? We're familiar with that. That's actually Roman and Jewish law when you think of it, and we'll look at it in a moment here. But the accusation that this man is somehow glorified for a sketchy dealing is not so at all. You see, to the average Jew at the time, they would practice everything under the national law, which is not Israel, it's Rome, right? Rome is occupying the land. But the day-to-day lives for a Jew would be practiced by the law of Moses. And this is interesting because both the Roman law and the law of Moses are harmonious. The state might come in and say, well, that's mine because I want my cut from it. You know how the state is, especially with taxes. But Rome and Jewish law were harmonious. They were reconciled in this very matter. If you found it on your property and nobody had a legal rightful claim to it, it was yours. There's nothing sketchy about it. And I wanted to point that out because that is an accusation against Jesus. It's like, man, he's glorifying this guy doing something a little bit suspect on his property. But secondly now, when we deal with the parables overall, we begin to see something present in this parable that doesn't exist anywhere else. As you read the parables and they get bigger and bigger, more detailed, and sometimes Jesus explains them multiple ways, this one is so short and so perfect in a way that the minute details simply don't really matter because the man has literally found heaven according to our Lord. Heaven is worth it is basically the point. You see, there is joy in discovering heaven, and that is what he's trying to get across to the disciples at this time. And when we consider this parable overall, we understand that this man didn't just stumble upon something out of nothing. He was diligently working. He was diligently pursuing good things in life. Work itself is good. We, we think work stinks because it's not only laborious, but it's, it draws on us. It sort of consumes our soul. It ruins our emotions. Sometimes we have to deal with extremely difficult people. There is an aspect of work that is cursed. We know that from Genesis chapter 3. But what was Adam doing in the, in the garden before the curses had come? Before he had sinned, in other words. He was working. He had named all the animals. We were reading that this morning, were we not, together? And this is important. Through your earnest and diligent livelihoods, you can come across something as great as heaven. Now, you might come and say to me, well, Nicholas, we're all Christian. We know that. Duh. And that's a fair remark. But at the same time, think of how people come to Christianity. Jesus is literally showing the birth of his church here. These people did work honest and hard lives. Think of Peter, for example. We know him as a fisherman, right? But when we look at the conversion of Daniel, this, or sorry, Nathaniel, this will make sense. So what about the next example now? Make sure I'm on the correct slide. Yep. The next example is the pearl. And I mentioned this precious pearl and why it matters. God is everywhere. We, we can agree to that. He tells us this. He's what, what they would refer to as omnipresent or simply Everywhere at once, at one time, God is. And this is key. 
The first example is digging in the earth. Now, where do pearls come from? Now, a freshwater pearl hunter might say, oh, you can just go down to the river, you dig up some shellfish, and you're fine. But you have to imagine where the pearls come from here. They come from the Red Sea. They come from the Mediterranean Sea, specifically uh, closer to the Greek regions. Or they come from as far as Great Britain. And it's still true today. So a pearl hunter, if he doesn't find it in the marketplace, he's going to have to find one of two ways to sort of get this pearl. He's either going to have to jump in the water and dive himself to get the, uh, to get the shellfish and find the pearls, or he's going to have to find somebody willing to do it and he's going to have to cut a business deal. Either way, it's deep, it's hard, it takes effort, and then there's the risk of maybe the pearls that come back are not of good quality. In ancient times, they used to really value the pearl, far more than we do today of diamonds. And the reason for that is twofold. One, simply to find the pearl would be a wonder itself because of how hard it was back then. Today, we can use machinery, dig some stuff up, or we can grow them in a lab. They couldn't back then. But imagine the dangers of diving. They do it today in the Philippines and near Malaysia. Diving deep down just to find the shellfish to have a pearl. And not all animals, or sorry, not all of the shellfish produce the same type of pearl or the same number of pearls. Precious pearls generally are produced one at a time. Some shellfish will produce 10, 50, or 100 of much lower quality. And Jesus points out here, this guy on this hunt, if you will, finds a pearl so precious, so beautiful, that it's worth selling everything for. And that might seem odd to us, because we know the value of heaven is not like that of gold or silver. So why does Jesus talk about a pearl? Well, he talks about a pearl for two key reasons. One, the pearl is the height of wealth. Like if you wanted to make a wealth statement today, you might wear Louis Vuitton clothing, Gucci. You might drive a high-end car, maybe a Rolls Royce or something like that. But back then, the statement of wealth literally is the pearl. And you've got to think about it. Because we understand in Scripture, but also in history, the royal color of purple, they come from the same shellfish that would bear pearls. And so, if you find this wonderful pearl, if you are financially of, of, of mind, in other words, you're an entrepreneur or really sound with business, you know you would sell a lot to keep it so you could make an even greater profit. But something is different. Today, we will buy diamonds for various use. We have industrial diamonds to drill into the earth. We will buy a diamond for someone we love, right? Or we'll have a diamond necklace or something for them, or earrings or a ring if we engage kind of a thing. But back then, they used to hold the pearl just to look at it, just to admire its beauty. And that seems kind of weird to us. But you have to imagine that this precious pearl shows up. It's so special, this guy says, I'm never going to find anything greater. What do I do to keep it? And he starts to count the cost. And that cost is, literally, it's worth it to give everything up to have it to secure it. And so from this example, we can begin to see these truths that Jesus is literally suggesting to us. And I say suggesting because it's not that he doubts them, but you have to remember, people that are confronted with the reality of God, they always react differently. When Jesus presents this, 
some of the suggestive truths that begin to show up is that the kingdom of heaven itself, remember, all three of these parables are showcasing the kingdom of heaven. But when this pearl shows up, it suggests that heaven itself is the most loveliest of things. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. Revelation chapter 21. And this is, of course, Jesus giving us a beautiful description. He's telling John, as we know, but he gives us this beautiful description of heaven. And I'll turn there myself here in a second, just make sure I'm on the same page here. Look beginning in verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So we begin to get this description of what literally heaven looks like. And then in verse 13, continuing on, there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city was laid out in a square, its length as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length, width, and height, all being equal. And you carry down and we get a description. Look in verse 18 and 19. We get exotic stones, right? All the way up to the number 12. But now look in verse 21 for those who are following along. Verse 21, the Lord declares, when you look at it, he says, in the 12 gates were the 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. You see, Jesus declares that the kingdom is like the most precious pearl. Today, we like pearls. We often will give our wives or our girlfriends a pearl, or maybe our grandmother, and it'll mean something to them. And you can tell the difference in quality of pearls based on its color. The stereotypical pearl is this bright white thing, but the most precious and rarest of pearls are not bright white. But this pearl merchant would have known exactly what is a pearl of worth and what is a common pearl. Pearls don't really have much use in anything. But Jesus declares he has found the greatest of the pearls, and he compares that heaven is the most loveliest thing you can find. Think of it. Think of anything in your life, all of your dreams and desires. Is anything greater than heaven? You will say no, which is correct. But then I would ask, just to be fair, do you even know what heaven looks like? And you'll say, well, we just read it together in chapter 21 of Revelation. But that is such a limited description. But Jesus points out, look, heaven is so lovely. It is literally the loveliest thing in your life. And when the kingdom of heaven is presented before you, you're simply a fool to refuse it. Much so that this merchant, this pearl hunter, would be a fool to just throw away the pearl. All right. We'll move on to the next example here. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> when we think of this pearl and we think of the two examples we've gone through together, everything had to be sold and sacrificed to be able to gain the most precious thing. Now apply it to our lives. When you become Christian, we understand we put away the old, right? And we bring on the new. We understand the lessons of being born again. But think of counting the cost and throwing it all away to acquire the new. 
What would you do to gain heaven? It's not simply showing up to church. There is a huge change in all of our lifestyle. And in order to adhere to the principles that Jesus had taught, in order to acquire the very precious thing that he's offering, you have to realize something here. It's a little bit different today, not to take it for granted, but if your country is under the threat of war every single day, which Israel has been forever, for its entire existence, the precious thing that might show up before you might be gone in an instant. Now, there's a fair comparison. We're never promised tomorrow. But the preciousness of heaven, it is so valuable, it becomes invaluable. And it's so invaluable that we have to literally give everything to get it. Now, you might ask, well, how do we give everything, Nick? I'm a poor person. I work paycheck to paycheck. Or maybe for the younger ones in the audience, I don't yet work. And those are fair questions. Jesus is the one that pays the price. We know this. And so when we say we are willing to give up absolutely everything, it means we are willing to put off our dreams, our desires, our passions. Maybe we want to travel somewhere. It's not to say travel is bad. It's not to say that you can't have dreams and desires, but it is to say your priorities shift. And when the priorities shift, then you truly can understand that what you are giving up is well worth it. None of us know, but maybe in a couple years' time, some of us could be the most successful, rich people ever. It's entirely possible. But Jesus is showing us here that even the greatest wealth on earth doesn't even compare. Because he uses the most precious thing at the time on earth to compare heaven. And as Christians, we know heaven is greater. I asked you to turn to Mark chapter 10. I want to point out an example here. Look in verse 28. When we discover what heaven is, and we understand what it means to take on heaven, it means that God's will is forefront and it is center. It means that God declares this. Remember, our Lord says, he who does the will of my Father. That's an important lesson. When you give up everything, you begin to take on the will of God. You think of what Jesus lived. He was a king, but did he have a castle? He was a king, but did he have horses? He was a king, did he have a nice place to stay? He came from the lowliest of low places. And we'll take a look at that when we look at our transition later. But he came from the absolute state of lowness to offer the very best thing. That is heaven, attainable to all. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter began saying to the Lord, Behold, we have left everything and we have followed you. And Jesus had replied, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, sisters or mother or father, children or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There are two key examples there. I want to only focus on the one. The one example we're interested in here is like, look, whatever you give up for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, you will get back a hundredfold. Now, what does that mean? It literally means me coming to you and say, give me a dollar, I'll give you a hundred dollars. Now, it's not a Nigerian scam, and I would never ask you for that. But 
That's the way we can begin to draw it. If I ask you for a buck and you're like, sure, and I give you $100, you just made a hundredfold. Jesus is pointing out keenly here, look, whatever you sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, it'll be so worth it. A hundred times is sort of an expression here. It's way higher than that. God hides heaven from us for a reason, because he wants us to be serious to pursue it. We know it's of great worth. We know the cost of heaven is literally the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the cost. But I would ask you, can you count that high? No amount of richness in the world could ever relate to the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. At the time he's teaching these parables, that is not known to anyone. Some of the most well-informed and well-taught scribes would have known that the Messiah had to suffer. But absolutely nobody at this time knows that Jesus has to go to the cross to make that happen. So Peter asks him, Behold, we've left everything, Lord, and we've followed you. And finally, the third of the examples, the dragnet and the separation here. And I mentioned a little bit about the dragnet. In the ancient world, there were two key types of fishing nets. There was kind of the one that you see in cartoons when they want to capture someone. They'll sort of toss the net and it'll land on top of them and capture them, kind of a thing. And then the dragnet is this big, huge net that they will it'll stand upright naturally in the water because it's weighted on the corners. And then they begin to drag the net and it narrows into a point and it's like this big cone going through the water and whatever's there gets picked up. And so the Lord compares this, uh, this kingdom of heaven, the literal kingdom of heaven, to this dragnet. And this is kind of interesting. That's probably the most natural thing Jesus could do. You, you imagine, and we've spoke together, you imagine him talking to Peter, talking about fishing terms to make heaven relate is a very effective tool. And the most natural thing for Jesus, the king fisher, if you will, of the souls of men. And he gives this perfect example. A dragnet will pick up anything, even if you try today. And remember, I did say I grew up on the coast, you see these huge nets and you've got to be careful. If you're fishing near one of these big ships, they will actually catch you up. You have a limited window to escape or the net will pull you in. And these are massive nets. It's big enough to take the whole building. Like These are huge nets for fishing. And so the Lord compares the kingdom of heaven and the efforts surrounding it to this dragnet. And with a dragnet, there is a process of separation. You imagine that if you pick everything up, like if we took a big net and we just kind of went down the road with it and we picked up all sorts of stuff, there'll be stuff of value worth keeping, worth preserving, and there'll be stuff of uselessness. And so Jesus starts to illustrate this here, that at the time, we call it the ancient world today, it was a very crude approach, but they would pick up everything and then they would lay the netting on the beach floor, they would literally drag it on, be a lot of effort, it would usually be a team to do it. And then they would go through everything that was caught and they would take the good and the bad. Today, commercial fishing, you can actually prepare the fish for transport right on the ship, depending on the size of the ship, right? You can actually cut fillet or freeze dry, or if you need fresh, like fresh preservation, you can do that also. But back then, if they had to go even a few miles, or let's say 20 miles max, and they would sail it, they would have to put the fish in water right away or it would spoil, especially with the open air and the sea. And Jesus is pointing out an interesting principle here. 
when you think of the church, the church can be one of two key ideas. And we'll kind of narrow down the focus here together. The church can be exclusive or the church can be inclusive. Now, some might be getting ahead of me and it would be fair. Inclusive means we take in too much and that's wrong. Exclusive means we don't take in enough and that's also wrong and you would be right. But let's take a look at each of the examples. The synagogue and the temple, at least as the Pharisees would have had everyone believe, is that being a Jew was quite an exclusive club. If you weren't nationally born a Jew, in other words, you didn't have the blood of a Jew, you'd be a convert and they'd treat you differently. Now, if we apply that to the church, think of the tear among the wheats example, which is earlier in Matthew chapter 13. What does the Lord tell us not to do? If you lift up the tares among the wheat, you risk pulling up the wheat and throwing out the good with the bad, which is very terrible. But in an inclusive church, you have to remember too that our Lord has rules and regulations, guidelines also, for what is constituted a member of the church being in the church. Let me give you a clear-cut example. If I practiced some crazy form of degeneracy, I shouldn't be in the church. And that's where it's right for the people to say, well, how inclusive do we have to be? The point is this. Under the dragnet principle that Jesus is teaching here, you drag up everything. But it's only in the final judgment, which Jesus will do, that the right and the bad are finally separated. Brother John had preached that this morning in his sermon. He talked about the lesson where God would separate the goats and the sheep, the right and the left, the good and the bad. And it's the same example we find present here with the dragnet. There's a set time to do the separation, and the separation has to be handled correctly for the desired outcome. So I mentioned these examples, and I mentioned a transition period. <clears throat> um... Sorry, I keep jumping through some of the slides here. Am I going the right way? Yeah, I am, but for whatever reason, I think I hit this twice, and it won't go backwards. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, transition period. Go back to Matthew 13 if you're following along. Jesus asked the disciples if they understood, and they're going to learn something keen, and they're going to learn something relatively new to them. When you think of these three parables and how they line up, and they flow literally one after the other, there's something sort of waiting in the wings for each of them. Think of a new convert to Christ. And we, we do have some new converts here relatively recently. I know my father is sort of a summer ago, our friend here, she's this year kind of a thing. There's this understanding that Jesus is sort of trying to draw out of them as, because he's preparing them for an even greater work when you think of it. And that understanding is, look, when you convert into Christianity, God has already given you the talents that you will have, or at least the pathway to develop those talents. Never once does our Lord say here, look, yeah, you're converting, you're going to come in to the church, you will be a member of the kingdom, you'll be even a citizen, if you will. But you don't throw out the talents. Instead, the talents are used for God. And that's key. These talents could be, uh, maybe you're effective at leading through song, or maybe you're effective in speech. 
Maybe you're effective in teaching or any sort of thing. Maybe you have a skill that can help members of the church. If you're mechanically inclined, for example, or good with computers kind of a thing. Jesus is saying, look, whatever you would have had learned or had been learning, you now use it for service in the kingdom of heaven. And that's important. Because under the old Jewish system, literally putting away the old meant killing every aspect of it. And when you look at Jesus' language, when he issues the woes to the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, there is an expression in there that he uses. He says, you make them twice a candidate of hell as you are. Jesus, at some level, is referring to that. Where they throw out literally the good, what's left? Double the bad when you think of it. It's not just half the bad is brought forward. It's literally all of the bad is brought forward. If you throw out what's good, all you have left is bad. There's sort of no neutral, if you will. But when Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, bringing them into the church, however it is found, however it occurs, the good can be used for the service of the kingdom. I'll give you an example from Scripture. When Paul talks about the thief stealing no more, what does he to do with his hands? He's to work for the kingdom with them. Steal no more, but instead work with his hands for the benefit of the people of God. And it's the same mindset here. Okay, we've talked about the inclusivity and the exclusivity of the church. And now I wanted to kind of bring us to this example. I will read the example from John. Again, it's Nathaniel, so it's in John chapter 1. But I would like for you to consider two key verses in the Old Testament because it's going to help illustrate what Jesus says about Nathanael. The first one is in the 32nd Psalm, just verse 2, and I'll read it here. Psalm 32, this is the Psalm of David, but look at verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, we're very familiar with this one. This is the prophecy of the suffering servant. But look at verse 9. Isaiah declares, he says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The example in Isaiah is strictly reserved for Jesus. The example in Psalm 32 is literally everyone in the world who has no deceit. And what does Jesus say about Nathanael? We'll read that example. John chapter 1, and I believe it begins in verse 43. John chapter 1, just turning there myself. The next day he had proposed, this is verse 43, John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day he had proposed to go forth to Galilee, and he had found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip had found Nathanael and said to him, come, we have found the one whom Moses and the law and also the prophets had wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael had questioned, and he said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. And Jesus had saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. 
Another word you may have in your translation is deceit. Just like we read in 32, uh, the 32nd Psalm. Nathanael had said to him, how do you even know me? And Jesus had replied and said, before Philip call you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus had said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see even greater things than these. And Christ had replied to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Some of the dialogue we're given in the Old Testament, specifically in the Gospels, is actually shrinked, compressed, or truncated in a way. This is one of those examples. This is not all of the dialogue that occurs, and you can test that by seeing how the language shifts from major ideas. Nobody talks like this, in other words. Not in ancient times, not even in our present time. But Jesus clearly had saw Nathanael under a fig tree. Now, why under a fig tree? What does that matter? I mentioned the most lovely thing imaginable is heaven. And if you think that heaven is the most lovely thing imaginable, you will have peace, tranquility, and joy from it. Those are some of the best things it can offer. And we know we find only peace, tranquility, and joy, specifically through Jesus. Under the Old Testament, there are descriptions we will find that, and we find it in 1 Kings or Micah chapter 4, for example, the description of a man who is happy with his vineyard and a fig tree, because that is where he finds peace and tranquility. That is where he finds joy. He's content. He can be at peace. And think of your own home. Some of you will sit in your backyard and just kind of take it in and enjoy yourself. You have a lot of peace, generally. We're even given the description of Jonah when he's rebelling, not our friend in the audience, but Jonah gets upset over having to preach God to these undeserving people. And God raises up a big plant for him, and it gives him shade. And God says, you were happy when you had shade, right? But you did nothing to earn it. And think of it this way with heaven. We did nothing to earn heaven. We can't earn heaven. We know this. But the most loveliest thing in the world compared to a pearl or even the greatest thing you can imagine. Maybe you have some great ideas, but heaven will be greater. And with that, we can find the same joy that Nathaniel has just as his conversion. But also, when we think of it, that Jesus truly has. Remember, our God is one of order, one of structure, one of peace. There is no calamity. There's no chaos. And so when we think of all that we've spoken about this evening, the parables, we're all familiar with them. And this isn't really a different perspective, but it's, helped to, it's helping us all to sort of understand that not only is the kingdom of heaven so precious, but it's worth giving everything for. And when you think it's worth giving everything for, there's no time better than now to come if you've not come. But what if you already have come? What if you have chaos in your life? What if maybe there's some instability in your life or maybe you have something nagging at you? Well, at the same time as giving everything up, it means also turning everything over to God. Anxiety, when you think of it, is a sin. We all have anxiety. I suffer from anxiety a lot. But Jesus tells us what we can do with anxiety. And so when we think for a newcomer who has not accepted Christ, 
or we think of a long-time Christian who's going through some hard times, the lesson is not far off for either. For the newcomer, we can say, come forth and be baptized. Accept the will of God, and you'll be on your path to greatness. But for the long-time person who's had a hard time, God still cares. God doesn't want you to destroy yourself. If you want to, stay away from him. But if you don't want to, he's always there for you. When Jesus meets everyone he converts along the way, he meets them right then and there on their terms. He never meets them on his terms. It's wonderful. If you're not a Christian this evening and you've heard that the kingdom of heaven is worth it, come forward. The waters of baptism are always ready, and we can help you. If you've not lived your life satisfactorily before God, or you have some things you want to work out, or you just need the general help and love of the congregation, come forward also, together as we stand and sing.